2.42 is, it's funny, we're going through the book of Acts, and uh, we're almost, I guess we're two and a half months in, and we haven't made it out of chapter two yet, but I got a good feeling we, we might before long. But Acts 2.42, I think the reason, I don't think, I know the reason that we're, we're camping out here is this is the basis of what Conduit Church is. If you're visiting, we started as a Bible study that was, uh, you know, I guess for lack of a better phrase, we were just a Bible study that happened to study the Bible. Um, and the beautiful thing about when you study the Bible, you go through the Word, the Word goes through you, and it changes you. And it began to change us as a group. And so Conduit Bible Study morphed into Conduit Mission. And the, the idea was really simple as we, we were doing this, and that was that, hey, we're just going to get together, we're going to study the Word, I have a job. It was the music business, so I used that word very loosely, but it was a job. And we would just give whatever money came in, we would, and we were going to pick three partners was the, the vision, that we would be then a conduit of his resources. That was the idea. A conduit is simple. It's a pipe. It's cheap. It's easily replaceable. You don't even notice it. Sounds like, you know, exactly what we were. So we are going to, whatever money that came in, we would flow it through to these three partners, one of which is right in our backyard in Columbia, Tennessee. They're called Place of Hope. Um, it's an amazing ministry for uh, folks who, uh, who are poor or who are in need, but they're battling with alcohol and drug addiction in their life. And th- th- literally, as, as Mike Coop, the guy that started the ministry, says, they're like, t- they're like modern-day lepers. We don't want anything to do with them. But he receives them. No charge. A bed, if it's available, they'll take you in. And Christ-centered inpatient, Place of Hope, that's one of the ministries that we were giving our finances to. Uh, we were giving our finances to Haiti, which I, I shared earlier, and I won't go into that again just for sake of time, but th- th- these three ministries, and then there's one in Africa that we've been financing now, and, and, and in, in the last two and a half, I guess going on three years now, th- we've been able to give away well over $300,000 that has come in through our little nickel and dime operation, and God has just blessed it. He brought in you know, money from all around the world, and we just were real faithful to the idea that we're not a pool, we're not a pond, we're not a lake, we're not a holding center, we're a conduit. And a conduit, when it's being used, is uh, resources are being flushed through it. So the uh, more crass metaphor is we are flushing God's uh, resources into the system. And so the other side of that is what's been awesome. So all that to say, what, what ultimately happened was conduit mission became conduit church. And instead of a church adding a missions department, it was a missions department adding a church which maybe was an appropriate way to do it. Um, and I'm excited to say that, like I said, we're two and a half months in and God has just been real kind to us. Um, and as I said earlier, we've got, we've got people in our church that actually haven't even been to church yet because they're out on the field somewhere. And, and again, you, you'll meet, actually you'll meet Ben in three weeks, but, um, but what we do here provides for that. And what we do here is really simple. Acts 2, 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then down in verse 48, it says, and the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. That's pretty much it. Like, I'd love to make it more difficult than that, because as humans, we kind of like it to be. We feel like we've earned it that way. But that was it. They devoted themselves to those four things, and then the Lord added to their numbers daily those that were being saved. And yeah, they were doing other things in the church, and you see some of the things that were happening, that they were giving of their need, uh, of what they, uh, to people that had a need, that there were miracles happening, and all these amazing things were happening. But what they devoted themselves to were those four things. And what, what we've said here is that that's like the four tires on our vehicle. The Conduit Church vehicle has four tires. They are fellowship, 
prayer, communion, and teaching. And those four tires, when they're in balance, will take us to wherever God needs us to go. And you know what it is? If you get out of balance in one, you maybe been around that in a place where this was out of balance, where we're really focused on just this, or we're really focused on the other. And, and what happens when your car's out of balance? My wife's minivan, I told you about it two weeks ago, right? That it was out of balance. And just two weeks later, I still am not taking it to uh, the shop and apologize. Um, still pulls to the left. <laughs> and what happens when you're pulling that way is it wears down the tires because it's out of balance. We want to keep these four things in balance. And we've already, if you've been around, you know we've already talked about teaching. We've talked about communion. We've talked about fellowship. And today, we're going to talk about prayer. And in Luke 11, Jesus, because Luke chapter 11, if you've been around church long enough, you know that the least attended events ever in a church situation are those that involve prayer. Get here early for prayer, none of us show up. And if, I were, if we're all being really honest, and I said, hey, how's your prayer life? You know, which is kind of a weird question, but how's your prayer life? We'd all have to be honest and say, yeah, yeah. And, and not all of us, right? Some of you guys would be, oh, no, that's, I'm locked in there. But it, for the most part, and I would say even for me that one of my weaknesses, man, I love to study the Bible. I love to de- dig deep and to find truth. And it is a, it's a discipline for me to pray, consistently every day. I mean, I'm just not one of those intercessor ladies, and God bless you if any of you are here this morning, can just go to the throne of God and, and clamp on and stay there for hours. God bless you and for that, and I believe there's even a gift of that. But, but for all of us, what, what they ask here even, when Jesus' disciples came to him, what they didn't ask him was, hey, tell us how you did that thing where you walked on the water. I want to learn that trick. That'd be awesome. Be at the next party I'm going to, I want to show him, I want to walk up on the, the bath water. They didn't ask him, for that, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. It says, verse one, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, verse two, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. You might remember, you might have memorized the parallel one over in Matthew, the the Lord's Prayer, we call it. Teach us to pray, and he he rattles that off. But then, like Jesus always did, he said, Let me paint a picture for you, though. Let me show you a couple of ways that this might look in your life. He says, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, Lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, keeping in mind, in that day, when someone was traveling, it wasn't like you could call ahead of time and say, hey, I'm going on a trip. It wasn't like you could text and say, hey, I'm over at Highway 65. I should be there in 10 minutes. You just literally went, and you know, sometimes the donkey went a little slower, and sometimes you showed up in the middle of the night. So he's saying, in this situation, this was something that was common to them, Hey, if your friend shows up, this is what it might look like if you needed to go get some bread from your neighbor. And then he says also, verse 7, he says, um, Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, though, that he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. Yet because of the man's boldness will he get up and give him as much as he needs. And so I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Amazing, right? Sounds nice. And then he says, now which one of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When you're in a posture of prayer, I'm asking you, you don't have to answer, but answer in your own mind. When you're, you are in a posture of prayer, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as someone who's trying to close the gap? Like, I need to get to pray so then I can get to God. Like, I need to knock, knock, knock on the outside. Like, do you see yourself on the outside knocking, trying to get something from God? Do you see yourself in that, man, if I just knock long enough, man, he didn't answer yet. I knock again. Man, this is going to irritate him, but I'm going to, you know. Do you, I mean, is that where you see yourself? Because Jesus painted a picture of that, that that's a picture here. This is the friend going through. But listen to me. Think about this with me. We know where the friend is in the metaphor. He's where? Outside. But Jesus elaborates this metaphor, and he says, but you, if you're a father and your son, he even says in the opening salvo, when you pray, pray, father. And so my question to you is, we know where the friend is. Where are the children? They're inside, curled up in bed with daddy. In that environment, in that culture, and even to this day, in many cultures that aren't America, <laughs> the families all sleep in one room. If you go to Haiti or Africa, or, in fact, sidebar, we, um, we were in Africa in the middle, I mean, just middle of nowhere, sod hut, and there was this husband and wife, and they had, I don't know, umpteen kids. And so we're trying to think of intelligent questions to ask and he says, um, somebody says, well, how do you, what's the most difficult thing about being a father, you know, in, in, where you are? And, and he, you can see him talking to the translators kind of looking like, like, oh, man, I don't know what to say here. And, the, and so the translator goes, um, he says that the most difficult thing is, um, do you know what I mean when he says the business? He says he has to, f to send the kids outside when he and his wife do the business. <laughs> and we were like, okay, even in, even in Africa, right? But... But in that environment, the kids would sleep all in the same room, on a pallet kind of thing. And I think that there are probably too many of us that put ourselves in the posture and the picture of outside knocking, begging, being obnoxious, that if I pray long enough, that eventually I'll wear them down and he'll give me what I want. And there aren't enough of us that start with the posture of, that's my dad. Like, I'm asking my dad. And he says, you, you earthly fathers, you Darren, okay, you're an idiot, and I know it, but you still know how to do good for your kid. How much more would your heavenly father do for you? When my kids throughout the day running around the cul-de-sac, dominating the E-man with his weaponry and his gator. And, you know, when he's hungry, he comes, he doesn't knock, he just comes in, and he hits the pantry. Sometimes he asks, 
And you know what? If you're his friend, a lot of times you'll walk out with a popsicle too. But Ethan doesn't have to ask. He doesn't even have to beg because I'm his daddy. There aren't very many benefits to being Darren's son or daughter, but you can come into my pantry and eat. As a father in heaven, and if you'd go with me to, the, to Galatians 4, as, a, as our father in heaven, my posture ought not ever to be as the beggar on the outside looking in. Jesus, in John 14 through 16, and if you get a chance to go home and read that today, it's amazing. And when you read it in the context, which is that Jesus was getting ready to sign off, getting ready to be crucified, and he took his disciples. And in one passage, I heard a, a minister say that, you know, that, that actually the word he used was, I lusted to have this, I wanted to have this dinner with you. He had the Passover with him a few times, but this one in particular, because he was about to, it was a game changer dinner. Because he's saying to them now, look, I taught you how to pray, Father, art in heaven. But I'm telling you, and he says in John 16, that in that day, you're not even going to ask me. You're going to ask the Father directly. And you can ask in my name. In my nature, in my name, will you ask? And he'll give it unto you. We don't have to have a go-between. I think that it's such a curse of, of religion and of those things that we try to put this old covenant thing on us that we think we have to go to the, to, the, to the convention center, to the guy that's in town that can then get the miracle for us because he's got some, side, some kind of an inside track to God. Nothing, listen to me, nothing will get us closer to God than the blood of Jesus has already gotten you. Not a single person on the face of this earth can get you any closer than Jesus already did, which is curled up in bed with daddy. It's an amazing picture when you think about it, and I know that it sort of puts our mind on tilt, because even, you know what, today, I, I caught myself, I was praying before the service, praying, okay, God, help me do this, and God, I want to, you know, like I'm trying, basically if I feel like I prayed enough, then it'll, we'll have a good service today. Like I have anything to do with it. Like it isn't just the Holy Spirit in me or in you. But that's part of that religion thing. I, I want to get in, I want to pray, I want to make, you know, make it happen. But as Paul tells us in Galatians, I don't have to stand on the outside knocking he says in Galatians 4, Paul, verse 4, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, you and me, that we might receive the full rights of sons. If you are a Bible underliner, I would suggest that that one be underlined, starred, asterisked, and maybe even the really fancy highlight coloring one. Because you are sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, Daddy. So you are, not, you are no longer a slave. You're no longer a servant, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. An heir. Now, the bad news for me is that I am, an, you know, I'm an heir of people that are kind of like me. They don't have a lot of money. But if, you're, if your grandparents or daddy or mommy has a lot of money or a lot of land, you kind of understand what an heir means is that that's yours. You're an heir. Like as a, as a son, as a daughter of that, that's part of your deal. And that is what happened. That's why Jesus says you're no longer going to have to even talk to me. He says you just go straight to the Father. And I think that the reason it's important that we start with this when we talk about prayer 
is you probably have done it. I know I have, and that's the pray for hours and hours and hours and hours, or, or try to go find a special spot and pray to, if I could beat the door down, and there's something supposedly magical or spiritual about an hour. Once you reach 60 minutes, something supernatural happens. I don't know. What I do know is the minute you say, Father, something supernatural happens because you are connected to the vine. You're connected to him. And sometimes you will pray for an hour. Sometimes you'll pray like Peter did when he's standing on the water and sinking, Lord, help me. In Jesus' name, amen. He didn't even tag it. He's like, Jesus, Lord, help me. And he did. And it's important to us because I think that we would pray more the more that sinks into our heart that we're just sons. I'm having a conversation with my daddy. I'm not having to beg him. I'm not having to beat the door down. All right, there's no distance that I've got to close. There's a Bible story that it reminds me of, of a guy named Mephibosheth. You've got to be careful how you say that name. And you're probably saying, you know, there's, there's the who's who of the Bible, and then there's the who's that. Uh, Mephibosheth is a who's that. But Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. He was, you might remember him more as King Saul's grandson. Mephibosheth, when he was five years old, he never knew his daddy because his grandpa and his father were killed in battle. And when he was five years old, his maids, the maidservant, they were running out because the, the town was being overtaken. And she, she picked him up in her arms, was running out the door, and she dropped him and broke both of his legs or feet or something that caused him to be crippled for the rest of his life, to be lame, to be ashamed. In that society, it was a shame. And it was something that basically made you destitute. So fast forward to a couple decades later, and David is king now. And David says, is there anybody from Saul's household, from Jonathan's household, that I can show kindness to? You remember, David and Jonathan were friends. They had a relationship. They had a covenant together. Is there anybody left? And they brought him Mephibosheth. He was the only one left. They brought him from a town called Lodibar, where he had been living in poverty, in shame. And in one day, Mephibosheth became the second richest man in the kingdom. David said, I want to give you everything, every land, everything that belonged to your grandfather and to your father. And, 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 you're going to be eating at my table. We talked about communion. Oh, man, I wish we had time to go into that. Eating at my table at the king's table, Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth never got over the shame. When he came to David to begin with, he said, I'm just a dead, what, what, how would you even notice me that I'm, I'm just a dead dog? I mean, the only thing you notice a dead dog for is, that's gross. Or when you're driving by and your kids are like, oh, that's sad. <laughs> a little dead dog. How, how would you even notice me? He said, I'm just a dead dog. Because that's, what he, that's how he saw himself. And then it, towards the end of Mephibosheth's life, this is all in 2 Samuel, by the way, chapter 4, chapter 9, and then in chapter 19, Mephibosheth, at the end of his life, David is coming to him and he's saying, look, he's, give it all away, Mephibosheth says. 
And, and we don't know exactly 100% why, but he gives us a clue when he says, there's nobody in my family that's worthy of this. I'm not worthy that we, we have this. He never got over the shame. He never got over that it wasn't about him to begin with. Because in that day when David came to him and they were getting ready to divide up the land, if Mephibosheth would have just said the name of Jonathan, his father. Because this wasn't about Mephibosheth. It wasn't about whether he was worthy. It wasn't about whether he was good enough. It wasn't whether he was smart enough. It was about a, a covenant that was made with Jonathan, a promise that was made to Jonathan. And I think that you and I have a tendency to dig somewhere deep into our past, maybe something that happened in your childhood that's brought you shame. And you feel like somehow that I'm just a dead dog and I'm on the outside looking in. And it was never about that. When Jesus says that I pray in my name, pray in my name, if you think I'm unworthy, of course you are. Of course I am. It was never about me. That's why religion is so evil. Because it makes it all about me and my list of failures, my history. And it was never about that. It was about Jesus and the covenant that he made. Knowing that we weren't good enough, but he loved us anyway. He loved us in spite of that. And when he paid the price... It brought us into the family so that you and I can go into whatever the historical record shows that you and I can go into the presence of God. Hebrews tells me I can go in boldly. Not jerky or arrogantly, but boldly. Like my son does, like my daughters do when they come inside. Boldly. Because they're not going to be like, you know how it is, if you go to your neighbor's house and start rifling through the fridge, that's going to be a little weird. Right? But if you go to your daddy's house or to, you know what I mean? That's not weird. To this day, when I go to my dad's house, I can open up the fridge, and if I like canned ham or sardines or black licorice or whatever weird thing he's got in there, I can have it because he's my dad, and that's the relationship I have with him. And our prayers, whatever we say, have to start with us understanding our position. And I'm his kid. That he, he made me an heir. I heard a, a preacher talk about this just the other day. But the, the word in the, in the New Testament, that we hear the word covenant, that the word in the New Testament, when we hear the word covenant, I think is soon fake. You may have to Google it. I do know this, though. That isn't the word that the New Covenant uses, because sunfeke is the word for covenant in Greek, and it means two things coming together, two partners. It's where we would even get our word synthesizer comes from that, soon, sin, soon, bringing two things together, to like a deal that has been struck. You do this and I'll do that. Sunfeke, that is the word for covenant in Greek, but that is not the word that is used in the New Testament. The New Covenant for us, for the New Covenant, is the word diafeke, and that is the word for testament. It is the word for, if a rich guy dies, the, the last will and testament is then left to you, to me, by just believing on him. We become heirs of that. The diafeke, that's why it's called the New Testament. Because it is the testament of what God has provided for you and I through the death of his son, the diafeke, the new covenant. Now, hear me out on this. 
And we're getting ready to land, so if you get your seat backs up, your tray tables up, seat belts fastened, we're going in for a landing. Go back to Luke with me. Because some of you have been praying, and some of you are facing enormous situations, and you're wondering, when is it mine now, God? When is it mine? But listen to what Jesus says in Luke 11. Chapter 11, verse 13. If you then who are evil, you, Darren, who know how to give good gifts to your children, listen to this, how much, for, how much more will your Father in heaven give the what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The answer to every one of my prayers, to every one of your prayers, is the Holy Spirit. And then he is the executor of the will of the testament. So the answer to my prayer is the Holy Spirit moving in my life and then him, because you know what? Sometimes when Ethan comes in looking for breakfast, well, it's two in the afternoon. It isn't breakfast time. Sometimes Ethan comes in looking, Ethan's my four-year-old, he's the man-child, the one spoken of by the prophet. Um, (laughs) We have three daughters, right? So he came on the last swing. When he comes in, Sometimes he can have candy, and sometimes he can't. And I want you to know that at four years old, I can be as logical as I want to be with him, and it doesn't matter. He doesn't get it. Because he doesn't understand. And the reason he doesn't understand is that when you're four years old, in fact, science tells us up until you're 25 years old, your brain is not fully formed. If you look back to when you were 21 and think, man, I did some dumb stuff, there's a reason. (laughs) That part wasn't fully formed yet. Felt a lot better about that, by the way, when I look back on Bible college, I'm like, oh, no wonder. But when you're four, there comes a moment where whether Ethan likes it or not, he's just going to have to trust daddy. And he doesn't understand and he doesn't know that the answer to his prayer, food, is actually me because I'm the provider of it. And I get to decide when, what quantities, what kind and keeping in mind, yeah, I'm a little arbitrary and a little capricious at times, okay? There's, there's the inconsistencies here and there. Not with our Father. And so when the Holy Spirit is with us, it's why there are no prayer manuals. Because the Holy Spirit is supposed to teach us to pray anyway. And then, as we're praying, the Holy Spirit is the answer to that prayer. And Him moving in us to say that in this situation, when I don't see something manifesting right in front of me, I know that I can rely on the Spirit to lead, to guide, and ultimately to know this, that he says that I will withhold no good thing from those that walk uprightly. And if you haven't gotten it yet, Ethan wants a driver's license. Maddie right now, she's 13. She'd love to have a driver's license. Okay? She ain't getting it. And she kind of understands it. You know, as you get a little bit older, you begin to understand more. But she'd like to have it right now, but she can't because that's not good for her right now, not in this moment. I get to make those decisions because I'm her father. And when she asks things of me, sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no. And sometimes I can't even say why. If you're a mom or a dad, you know, I don't know, just because I said so. And here's the thing. It isn't because, or maybe some of you it is, I don't know, but for me it isn't necessarily because I'm trying to hold something over on my kid. It's sometimes I, I can't explain it in a way that they'll understand it, so they have to just trust me. In the middle of Job, towards the end, I should say, when God finally has the opportunity to say, here's what happened, Job. Oh, there's this weird thing, Job chapter 1 and 2, where I talk with Satan. and we, Job never knew any of that. 
And Job got the opportunity. He, basically, he'd asked God why. And God took the friends and said, okay, look, that wasn't why, that wasn't why, that wasn't why. So you take your sackcloth and your ashes, go sit in the corner and think about what you've done. Now, Job. And he gets the opportunity to defend himself to Job. The moment where it would have been great, you know, Fox News coverage. Here's why. And all he does is read him his resume. He says, Job, did you put the stars in the sky? Did you put the Leviathan in the sea? And I don't think it's because he didn't want Job to understand. It's because Job couldn't understand. The Bible says it's in Corinthians. Paul says that one day you and I will fully know as we are fully known. And so one day I'll get it. I'll be like, oh. But for now, and again, it isn't because God's mean and some big old grumpy guy that's just holding out information. He just knows that I'm, I'm, his, I'm like Ethan. And think about it for a minute. My intellect compared to God's intellect. The comparison between me and my four-year-old son isn't even in comparison. God is infinite. There are just things that he'd probably love to explain to me right now, but he can't. He will one day. And think about this. What, what on earth would cause us to sit around the throne for an eternity saying, righteous and true are your judgments? Then us getting the answers to all those questions. You think lost had a lot of left loose ends on it? Imagine someone sitting around in a, part, a lost party explaining all the loose ends. And then now imagine that in heaven. You, it'd be like us, every strand of our life, every loose end that's being tied together and woven together, and we would say righteous and true are your judgments. That time when that happened in your life, well, remember that intersection? Well, here's this person you didn't even meet, and look, she came to know the Lord, and look, there she is over there, and you know, bring her on down, and righteous and true are your judgments, God. Awesome. Right on. And for now, on this side of heaven, because we can't grasp it yet, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He is, it's, we sang it this morning, he is our prize. He is our reward. Jesus, it says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that he is the Spirit. The Spirit is a reflection of him. He's a reflection. It's the Trinity, the mystery. That's our prize. When we get to heaven, I got news for you. Heaven isn't the prize. Jesus is. Everything else is gravy. That's our reward. That's our prize. And everything else around us is just things we get to enjoy in his presence with him. And wrapping that back up into prayer, when we approach the throne of God, we don't approach him arrogantly, cocky, but we also don't approach it in shame. We're clothed in his righteousness. And whatever it was that happened to you, I mean, Mephibosheth, he didn't even do it. It was someone else that did it to him. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've battled something in your life that just makes you feel like you're an outsider from God, and I got news for you. You're not, because it wasn't about you to begin with. It wasn't about me. It was about Jesus. It was about the covenant, because David had made a covenant with Jonathan, and I tell you that if Mephibosheth had just said, Jonathan, Jonathan, David would say, that's right, that's the covenant that I have. It's not with you, it's with Jonathan, and you get to enjoy those benefits. And God, that covenant that he has is with Jesus paying for those sins for us, and now we are his sons and his heirs. We don't have to go in with any shame. We don't have to go in to earn anything. And in our prayers, in your prayers, I encourage you to consider that. I think you'll find your prayer life to be much more rewarding, knowing that it is 
You as a son, you as a daughter, you as an heir in Christ, Galatians tells us, approaching your father, asking. And how much more? If we ask him for bread, would he give us a stone? If we ask him for an egg, would he give us a scorpion? He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit, the executor of that testament, moves in our lives. So as we worship for just a little bit longer, I would encourage you to enter God's throne boldly in your prayer life. They devoted themselves to prayer. We ought to be devoting ourselves to prayer. And how much better is it to approach prayer when we know we're going into our daddy's house, we're not going down the street to the neighbor trying to knock on the door seeing if they'll let us in to to borrow something. Mephibosheth walked away from it because of his shame. Man, I hope you don't walk away from it. I hope you walk into his presence. And if you need a reminder of it, we have communion available. We joke, but it's... um, it's gluten-free Sunday. Audrey, who's one of our children's workers, is leaving for the summer, and she's a, a, it's got a little gluten thing going on, so we've decided it's gluten-free Sunday. The sermon was gluten-free. Um, but communion, the Lord's table, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. Let me tell you what, that was a big deal in his day. Nobody ate at the king's table unless they were family, unless they were sons, unless they were heirs. And Mephibosheth was not a family member. He wasn't an heir, but he was brought in because of a covenant, because of a relationship. And he had every same right. He got to, if they said pass the chicken to Mephibosheth, let me tell you what, Mephibosheth got some chicken because he was a son in the family. That's what we are, sons and daughters and heirs in the throne of God. And whatever shameful things that are in our past, whether we did them, whether someone else, don't let the historical record stand in the way. Because Jesus washed it, cleaned. That's what, what's, what's so amazing about grace. We sing amazing grace. What's so amazing about it? Start with that. My past, your past, it doesn't matter. Father, we come to your throne boldly. And my prayer this morning is that every single one of us would walk into your throne boldly, knowing that the, the, knowing that the ground in front of your cross is level ground. We can't earn our way in it. We can't get washed up to get in it. We are washed by you. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we could do something to add to what you did on the cross. Like it wasn't good enough, like it wasn't enough, so we have to add to it to make it good enough. Forgive us for that. And today we stand in your throne room as sons and daughters, as heirs, not based upon us, but based upon you and the covenant that we have with you. And as a group, as a congregation as just a gathering of believers we say the name Jesus knowing that that is what we are invoking your name your honor your presence and your nature and it is in Jesus name that we pray amen